You're listening to Mech's Design Talk, the podcast where we explore emerging technologies, user behavior, and how to design better digital experiences. The theme for this episode is movement, which we're going to be looking at from a few different angles. One of the macro trends which is going on within digital at the moment is the movement of ideas and talent from traditional areas of digital industry around the manufacture of hardware and software, things specific to computing, moving to become pervasive within other industries, be they healthcare, automotive, fashion, media. There's this general trend of the people who have acquired skills about user-centered design within the digital space, moving to employ those within a much wider range of industries. And our guest on the show, in some ways, represents a microcosm of that macro shift that we're seeing. Parish Hanna is the global director for interactions and ergonomics at Ford. But when he was last involved with MEX a few years ago, he was in a similar role for Motorola, who at the time were facing these kind of challenges within the smartphone space. So we end up having a chat about how some of the principles which defined that part of Parrish's career have become actable within automotive and going on to look at the idea of movement and mobility and the role that cars and digital devices play in that in the broadest sense and how that relates back to the relationship that we have with these kind of things as customers and how you can design for that. There's another element to the movement theme as well, which is that as part of the ongoing experimentation of the different formats that we might use with this podcast in the future, you might be able to hear that I am recording this on the move. I'm actually out on a walk at the moment uh, on the Norfolk coast, close to where I live in East Anglia in the UK. And it's a morning full of movement here. My walk has coincided with the tide just starting to come in. So as I walk along, you can see the water rushing into the channel and all of the movement of that kind of waterscape around, which is going to change the landscape around me as I walk. There's the link between movement and creativity as well, which is something which continues to fascinate me and could become a subject for a future podcast, this idea around some of the principles of embodied cognition that we've touched upon in previous episodes of Mech's Design Talk, looking at how you move physically and manipulate different objects and the role of your body and actually driving the kind of creative thinking about some of these big problems that we're exploring in digital industry and design at the moment. And the scene in front of me as I record this is full of movement above the water as well. We happen to live in an area which is got an amazing collection of wildlife and particularly bird life and already I can see things like a marsh harrier swooping above the path and seagulls of course and all of the different birds which are here at this time of year which is providing a great backdrop for thinking about some of these issues which have come up during the recording of the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Do remember that There are show notes linking to everything that we discuss at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. And you can get in touch with your 
feedback and comments on Twitter at MexFeed, or if you visit mobileuserexperience.com, you can find email addresses and links to get in touch with us that way. Here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Marek Pawlowski, the founder of Mex, and with me, as always, is Alex Guest, the co-host. Alex, how are you doing? I'm very well, thanks, Marek. Good to be here again. Indeed, and to be joined by our guest, Parish Hanna, uh, who is the Global Director for Interaction and Ergonomics at Ford. Parish, good to have you on the podcast. Uh, happy to be here. Nice to talk to you guys. So let me try and recollect this correctly, Parish. I think it possibly was around 2010, you were last at our next event. And maybe to give a bit of context of how much things have changed in that time, um, I seem to recall that you were sharing the stage with uh, a chap from uh, BlackBerry, or what was then Research in Motion, and Nokia. And you at the time, I think, were with Motorola. Uh, and between you, you probably represented a pretty significant part of the, the mobile phone market in those days. And yet here we are um, six years later, and things have changed considerably. New role for you and a very different mobile phone industry, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it'd be interesting to look up those folks and see where they are today. <laughs> it's, uh, as all of us have, you know, many of us have um, stayed and persisted and stayed in that competitive foray, I think, you know, just changed company names and, um, you know, and regional focus and those kind of things. And then others like me have, yeah, yeah. Uh, probably seen the same technologies, the same challenges, um, the same evolutions, uh, you know, extend into other markets, right? Whether it's the connected home market or, in my case, automotive. Well, I think that's been one of the really interesting macro trends, as it were, within digital industry is that confluence of these different sectors and how there's been this interaction between the worlds of, for instance, mobile and, and automotive, which I guess you have been living day to day. Just give us a, a very brief um, insight into what is you're doing specifically with Ford at the moment, Parish. Sure. So I am the global director of interaction and ergonomics. Um, basically, every interaction that a consumer has with a vehicle, inside, outside, physical and digital, um, very explicit and very implicit. You know, we're responsible for crafting the design, doing the conceptual um, roadmaps, doing future concepts of what of the directions will go, um, and basically bringing it all together and then also delivering. So if you think about, you know, going from discovery and understanding of human patterns of behavior and perception and emotion and then tracking that all the way to... Um, uh, kind of owning the code, if you will, owning the presentation layer, sometimes owning uh, surface geometry for parts and things like that. So bridging physical and digital, again, everything that the human interacts with in vehicles. One thing that's interesting with Ford is just the global nature, right? Uh, one day we might be working on a supercar and a high-performance vehicle, and the next day it might be uh, a transit van or a Fiesta and a smaller car for emerging markets. Um, and now, obviously, we're getting into shared vehicles, um, autonomous vehicles, and quite a broad array. 
Well, it sounds like we're going to have a lot to discuss on the podcast. Um, we do have a bit of a tradition with Mech's Design Talk, and that is that we start with uh, a short segment which we call our show and tell. Uh, and it felt appropriate, given your role at Ford, uh, that we should start with some examples from the automotive industry. So our homework was each to go off and have a look and find an example of some element of experience design from the automotive world, be it relating specifically to the dashboard or digital things or just to the wider experience of of automotive, uh, and to each give a little example of that just to get our conversation going before we go on to talk on uh, about some more of the things uh, involved in in Parrish's role. Um, Alex, I know you've been busy researching for this. What have you come up with? Well, let me start off by saying, Marek, that um, I stopped owning a car about two years ago um, and, and decided that I would uh, subscribe to, to Zipcar. And, and so I'm now a, a, a faithful Zipcar user and, and um, uh, you know, just have to rely on, on whatever they deliver for me in terms of, of vehicle. Um, but I, as, as, I, as I have tended to do with, with these show and tells, Marek, I've decided to go back in time um, and uh, look at a particular element of, of user experience, um, which isn't purely about the interface. Um, and, and it's interesting, actually, uh, Parrish, that you refer to, to, to interaction design and, and that um, your role is all about every interaction between, essentially, I suppose, the human and the machine. Um, because uh, I suppose for me, uh, often cars are, are designed either uh, to improve the performance or to improve the styling um, and and the features sometimes um, feel as though they've just been added on afterwards, as though there's not that much thought about the user experience. But it, but if we go all the way back to 1968, um, Citroen, a French uh, car maker, um, was was doing quite interesting things back then. And and in their DS model, um, as well as uh, as well as including hydraulic suspension, which was always quite good fun. Um, they also included um, directional headlamps, uh, which adjusted the angle of the beam uh, based on, uh, I guess, mechanical feedback from, from both the steering and suspension. I think it was quite complicated, actually. Uh, and that experience uh, was very much a sort of a full three-dimensional multi-sensory experience that, uh, I suppose, not only improved the enjoyment of driving because you could see what was coming around the corner, uh, but also improve the performance, not of the car, but of the driver himself. Um, so, um, you know, I think that was, from an experience perspective, quite a, quite an interesting addition. Um, whereas some of the other technology that they added, as I mentioned, the, the hydraulic suspension, which was really about performance um, rather than experience, unless you were a child as I was, and, and, and you know, getting into a car, uh, well, the CX rather than the DS some, some years later, Getting into that was was really very much like getting into a, into a spaceship as the hydraulic suspension sort of lifted you off the ground before you started moving. Interesting, as you say, it, it does shine a, a light, so to speak, <laughs> on uh, just how broad that definition of experience can be within automotive. Uh, how does that sit with you, Parrish? Um, you know, in terms of the role that you have at Ford day to day, you were saying it's very much an overarching thing about all aspects of experience. Would that extend even into some of these things which would traditionally considered to be more about the, the, the raw hardware of the car? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, 
you know, and that tends to be where the comfort level is, right? Just the historical um, performance, um, feel, craftsmanship, right? And um, the very tactile things and the very mechanical things, the very analog things. So what's interesting is when you bring in connectivity and you bring in algorithms and you bring in uh, digital interfaces, right? What, what seems to have happened over time was I think, you know, you were hardwiring and using fuses and um, connecting wires and such to make things happen and to have certain controls. Um, but as things became much more complex, so there were suddenly multiple modules, right? There were like mini processors running everything in the vehicle. And, and if you wanted to add, you know, a new complex seat with many functions, you brought in new modules. And if you wanted to enhance the climate system, it had to have its own modules or its own brains. So that behind-the-scenes connectivity, right, of just the wiring. And for us, it's the vehicle architecture, the electrical architectures through the vehicle became really critical, but also became incredibly complex, right, exponentially complex, right? I think our cars now have more code than a Boeing 747 and stuff like or 777. Um, and, you know, the challenge actually has been to go back to those kind of grounding levels of simplicity and reduction in these complex systems, right? And to really understand even the organizations as they've changed. So as you guys know, half of the success of UX delivery, I think, is is also a reflection of the organization, right? And its capacity and willingness to do that and understand and put the consumer at the center. Um, but amongst this kind of, um, I'd say, web of complexity, getting back to something as similar as the examples you're giving, you know, where you're isolating one control type or um, you're isolating and prioritizing the most important information and turning off everything else is, has just become a lot more complex and challenging to do, I think, for both the organization because it's maybe feature-driven and for um, the systems themselves. Absolutely. So, yeah, that is a lot of what we, we spend our time doing, for sure, you know, trying to figure out how to get back to um, these levels of nuance, honestly, that that you're not really sure why it feels so comfortable, but it is the ultimate kind of comfortable experience or the ultimate pleasurable and reflective of what you need when you need it kind of experience, right? Well, I think you make a, a great point there about those organizational challenges and the link with the, the technological challenges. And, and one which has strong analogies going back into the mobile phone and the, the smartphone business as well, where there was for a long time that sense of many of the groups being involved in creating final smartphone products coming from those origins around very particular technologies. You, know, you had a team responsible for the Bluetooth elements, the team responsible for the touchscreen elements, a team responsible for the external design elements. Uh, and you know, we saw a lot of those challenges within the smartphone business as that tried to evolve and organizations had to get used to putting in place structures which allowed the complete vision for the experience to come together rather than just representing the interests of those different technologically aligned teams. And that was you know, quite a painful process, I think, for a lot of um, phone manufacturers to go through, and not all of them managed to, to make that transition successfully. And from an automotive perspective, I'm, I'm, you know, one of the things I'm wondering is how how do you organize um, a company as, as as large as Ford that has so many different product lines 
um, to to successfully deliver interaction design across all those products. So the physical and digital interaction design part is not as difficult because it's more centralized, you know, for the experience in and around the vehicle, it's more centralized within the product development, the vehicle development kind of areas. I think when you bridge um, into mobile or you start to even think about these domains of experience that you want to deliver, then it starts um, getting quite complex, right? Because it crosses over divisions, um, it crosses over teams, it crosses over technology foundations, multi-channels, and so forth, right? Um, yeah, it, it definitely has been... Uh, I think we're still figuring it out, <laughs> but I think, um, and it's it's interesting because I we can very much contain the in-vehicle experience and even the outside of the vehicle experience, but suddenly when you have brought in devices or you have another company's operating system, right, and, and their cloud connected inside the car, um, or you launch a system, if um, you're following Ford, you know, we've launched this. Um, mobile platform called uh, Ford Pass, and it is going to contain, you know, a lot of our service integration, um, a lot of in-vehicle remote control experience, the data and statistics and awareness of the vehicle itself, connections to your dealership, and so forth, right? Um, so you bring a convergence of so many different business and service models into, um, you know, one platform, and then suddenly... It can exist whether you own a car or not. It could be your primary relationship path to the company, or it may just be an ingredient, you know, for you to control your vehicle better, or it may be an enhancement of your in-vehicle experience, right? And they, these flexible frameworks are pretty are a lot what we spend a lot of our time with, right? The the structure, um, the extensibility, the nimbleness of of the way they're architected. And then, of course, you've got the choice of partners and the choice of content and function and everything else you bring in, right? Which was an interesting, at one point, I designed um, entertainment-specific phones and I designed productivity-specific phones and I designed camera phones, right? And uh, and then that all converged into smartphones and, and then it became a multi-purpose device. And I often talk about the vehicle now kind of being in that, uh, that era where it's a vessel for unlimited content and function, right? Via development platforms and third-party integration. And again, you're just faced with what are the most meaningful and useful um, things for people and or what level of personalization do you want to create for people so they can they can um, choose, you know, what more they might, what, might want to do in the context of their vehicles. So as that um, complexity uh, increases within the vehicle parish, um, and uh, as the the challenge of weaving together all of those increasing number of elements um, into some sort of cohesive experience for the the, the consumer increases, uh, how useful have your uh, lessons from the smartphone world when you were with Motorola been? Uh, in trying to make sense of all of that, you know, are there um, methods that you've been able to uh, transport directly into automotive to, to help you with that challenge? Or, or are you finding yourself having to come up with new ways of putting together these frameworks? 
No, I think um, that's actually been uh, very common, very repeatable, um, uh, very evolving process for me as a professional since, you know, the mid-90s when I started a user experience consulting firm. I mean, we we saw disciplines that came together. We saw a way of working. Um, and that's remained the same, actually, through my career, whether it's, um, you know, the foundational elements have remained the same, whether it was as a consultant to multiple verticals. Um, we really stress-tested it against, you know, consumer packaged goods and travel and um, and automotive and hospitality and um, B2B type things, you know. The processes, they scaled, they were repeatable, they led to good products and services, you know, they increased margins and revenue streams, they built big businesses. I mean, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that and um, even, you know, in corporate settings, whether it was consumer electronics or it was um, pure digital companies or it was telecom or now automotive, you know, it's it's the same principles. It's understanding, you know, more the consumer mindset, the consumer need, um, their relationships, the ecosystem of the use of the products and services. And it's less about the features you're delivering and now, you know, what they what they need to be a better husband or a better boss or a better partner or whatever the case is, um, that, that mindset's still always been there. And it's, again, making the technology disappear, making things excessively easy to use, making them pleasurable, making them emotional, emotionally compelling, right? So uh, Alex has given us the, the example of Citroen uh, from 1968, when you think about the things that have inspired you as you've made that transition into to automotive, um, is there a particular one that you would pick out which uh, you think is representative of the kind of experience that you're you're trying to get towards? Yeah, um, there have been quite a few, and I, I talk about these a lot, um, particularly with newer employees and such. It's interesting, just and newer people into the industry of kind of these moments, you know, whether it was um, on a certain platform and you first realized you could do service integration and generate revenue or build a service-based business, right, on a hardware platform. Um, experiences around, you know, whether the hardware would be a commodity over time. Um, experiences with analytics um, and the power of analytics, right, as a decision-making tool, um, how to use that within different organizations. Um, and then actual, just very specific, simple, minute features, right? And behaviors, I think, that help define, you know, applications and companies that we've worked with and things like that and tools we've used, um, which is, is interesting as we design even new software platforms. Um, a pretty typical example, which some people, I don't think many people have done in the industry, but if you look at uh, in-vehicle infotainment systems, so the big center screen that you might have and the touch screens, they went to a paradigm of having a home screen, right? And, and multiple disparate types of information, lots of functional selections and so forth. Um, status of your phone, status of your, your maps, status of your, uh, your radio system and those kind of things. Reality is 
the, that model, at least in our research, didn't really fit with how people thought about cars. You know, it fits with tablets, it fits with phones, um, but, you know, folks didn't really need to reboot to the home screen every time, right? I'd rather, if I drive with navigation or I drive with music always playing, I'd rather start my car and just, you know, go right into that mode, those kind of things. And honestly, I relate that back to applications like HyperCard, right? If on the Mac in the early days of animation and even application building, you never had a save button. It just automatically saved. Um, so those kind of references are quite interesting to me and were, were very meaningful in the most early days. And actually, it's great to bring, be able to bring things like that back to a, a very complex domain and complex system and, and have people realize the value of that, right? Yeah, as you say, I mean, interesting that those uh, sort of paradigms from things like phones and, and tablets um, were seen as being inspiration and were transferred, as you say, perhaps not especially successfully, um, but that when you start to take that more user-centered view of what's really needed in that environment and to take into account all of the contextual factors uh, from within that sort of in-car environment that would affect the the models, the mental models that people would want for those digital services, perhaps you end up at a, a rather a different place. Um, okay, well, I suppose given that you two have kindly shared your examples, I should also add in one of my own. Um, I'm going to go a little bit retro, um, perhaps not quite as old as Alex uh, back into 1968, but um, I'm going to go back to 1993 uh, when Saab, the Swedish car manufacturer, introduced something it called its night panel button. Uh, and it did one thing. When you press the night panel button, it dimmed every light within the cabin uh, apart from those illuminating the speedometer. So as you were driving along, you hit the night panel button and all of a sudden every distraction of things like the rev counter, the fuel level, the lights on the entertainment system disappeared and all you were left with was the road and the speedometer. And for me personally, and I, I had a, a Saab um, a few years back, it, it really did transform the experience of driving at night. There was something about taking away all of that additional information, which just uh, puts you in a different place in terms of your relationship with the road and the surroundings and the actual experience of, of driving the car. What I also found interesting about it was that Saab at the time had this marketing story all about how their cars were derived from expertise in another part of the Saab business in fighter jets. Uh, Saab actually stands for Swedish Armaments AB um, and uh, was um, involved in manufacturing stuff for the, the Swedish military. As to how... Um, real that connection was between the part of the business which made fighter jets and the part of the business which made the cars. I think that's perhaps a little bit dubious, but their marketing story was all about this idea that they had this heritage in fighter jets and their cars were these precision instruments. And really the only sort of tangible example of this uh, was this night panel button. It ended up featuring quite heavily in their advertising at the time. Uh, and for me, it did genuinely have a user benefit. Uh, and as is so often the case with great experiences, it was very much about removing things 
to increase the experience of another part of the product rather than trying to add in feature on top of feature um, and creating that sort of cramming effect uh, within the experience. Is this one that either of you guys is familiar with, Alex? Are you, um, do you remember these Saabs with their night panel button? Well, I, I, I don't remember the, the, the night panel button, actually, but um, I, I do remember the, 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 some of the TV campaigns um, where the, uh, the fighter jet provenance was um, included and, and very much made you know, central to, to, to their marketing message, as you say. And, and actually, one of the things that I found fascinating about that was how, um, looking back on it now, is, is how they were talking about a whole experience in, in the way that the car was built around the human in, in the same way that the fighter jet was built around the human to make it better to drive. I, I actually have never driven a Saab, so I have no idea what that, that experience is like. Um, but I, I wonder whether some of the marketing message perhaps was true, especially when you think about things like this this night panel button. And, and you know, as you say, it, it, it sounds like just everything being simplified and made as, as easy and, and usable as possible for, for, for the man or the woman in the, in the driving seat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly what it felt like as the driver of the car. And to that extent, you even though you knew it was probably a bit of marketing hype around that link with the uh, the, the Air Force relationship, um, as a consumer of that product, you were willing to believe the myth because there were these little clues to the story within the actual experience of using it, which made it tangible and, and made the whole thing feel real and worthwhile uh, but i think it, it kind of uh, points to a, an interesting notion for the future of this as well which perhaps you can talk about a bit as well parish this idea that actually some of these um features within the uh, um in cabin experience if you like and particularly relating to the digital touch points within a vehicle may end up becoming the bigger part of the branding story than the traditional things which have been used to sell vehicles in the past around colors and materials and form and performance uh, where actually we get to a point where uh, organizations start to lead on the quality of some of those digital experience elements uh, rather than those more traditional factors do you think we're there yet with that in the mass consumer uh, sense in the automotive market? Or is that something which is yet to come, Parrish? Uh, I think we're just actually starting to see the first signs of that. I think, um, you know, the little bit of television that I watch and, you know, paying attention more to mass media and media outlets and um, multi-channel marketing and such, we're starting to see more and more campaigns and stories that are around um, you know, the digital front, right? The digital feature creation, the use of sensors and digital feedback and those kind of things and what, what it affords, you know, in the experience of the vehicle. Um, your example is interesting. I use Saab as an example often of kind of this heightened level, especially back in the late 80s and early 90s. I think they just had um, engineers that had a sensitivity. They definitely had a thread within the company where they were actively talking about these things and making decisions for these very single um, modes, if you will, that were somewhat reflective of, you know, something unique, um, something, a need that was anticipated. 
um, a context of what was around you. The other example I use um, is around, I think, sub, you know, we're, we're one of the first ones to even experiment, first companies to experiment with um, purchasing vehicles online and when early browsers were even launching. And, um, and, you know, people were buying the same vehicle over and over again. They'd already owned the vehicle and they were buying the same vehicle with the next model. Um, and when you ask them why, it was because of one or two of these little features, right? It was, um, it just knows me. And that was their response. The other example that before the sensors existed was somebody had hardwired the um, windshield wiper to trigger one more wipe even after it was physically turned off. So maybe 15 seconds, you know, there's always one more drop of water going down the windshield and somehow even though it was turned off, it magically would shoot, right? And, and clean the, the windshield one more time. And it's like, okay, somebody's doing this. And um, I think actually when that engineer left the company, that feature went away for a long time until the sensors came back 10 years later and so forth, right? Uh, a lot of these kind of legendary stories come and go and exist across different verticals, but um, I think what we're talking about is very relevant. I think um, to parallel what you're talking about with um, the night panel, going dark in general is just a hard, whether it's literal or figurative, right? We have a button that says do not disturb on the center of our screens, and it basically cuts you off from incoming calls and um, you know, over time, you could imagine it would darken things and change the sound volumes and those kind of things. But um, the other trends that are worth following over time is really just the dynamic of how I use a car, right? I mean, um, is it a parallel to a fighter jet or is it becoming more precious to me as, you know, my own cocoon, right, my own space? It's we often hear people say it's more my space than my home is my space. Well, you used um, an interesting phrase there, I think, uh, in relation to the Saab example. You were saying that there was that notion among customers that it just knew me. And I guess in those days, that was very much down to educated guesses being made by the designers off the back of the user research that they were doing and then manually implemented. Perhaps the difference as we go forward is that there is the opportunity for cars at a digital level to genuinely know and adapt to their users in real time in a much more responsive way than they have done previously. To what extent do you think that kind of capability is going to give greater scope for delivering a differentiated experience to each user as an individual uh, when it comes down to cars, as opposed to it being something which just flows into model changes, you know, several years down the line. Sure. And I think, um, again, this is a kind of evolution of um, consumer interaction that we've seen um, go through trials and tribulations and experiments in other markets. Um, whether it's the internet, right, and aggregating multiple behavioral properties or multiple software applications and starting to give you examples, um, or if it's, you know, LED response on devices and, and what meaning that might have had. Um, I, these, again, are, are things we track a lot. I think, you know, it's amazing how fast the uh, adoption is and, you um, how quickly things become the new normal, right? When it 
when you enhance this human machine dialogue to a point of um, understanding uh, pattern recognition, uh, subtle recommendation, and then at some point just doing things for you, right? Thinking about that continuum. And that's something I've thought about actually in every vertical and every platform I've ever worked on. It's, it's always been so sophisticated and, and I kind of take the approach that, you know, good usability, good learnability, um, redu reduction of errors, you know, matching mental models. These are things we've been doing for a really long time and, and we should be really good at. And I think relatively quickly, um, you know, a lot of hardware platforms reach that level quickly, right? And even um, systems of, of products and services reach that level quickly. And then it becomes, okay, how am I going to make an emotional connection, right? An emotional connection that is representative of what I want my brand to stand for. Um, for me, UX and consumer experience has always been much more about that, right? The We know how to do very useful, usable products, how do we make them much more desirable and even connected and comfortable to who I am, right? Um, and adaptation and predictions and rule-based systems and algorithms are the key to that, right? Um, phrase recently that said all algorithms, algorithms make all data and all feedback personal, right? So at some point soon, um, everything just feels a little more personal and natural if it's appropriate to the context, right? If it's served and, and uh, triangulated correctly. Now, as, as we move forward, Parrish, into potentially a whole new different automotive world where we have self-driving cars um, and, and, you know, car sharing and, and vehicles powered, uh, you know, electrically rather than by, uh, by current means, um, what does that mean in terms of achieving an emotional connection? Yeah, I think um, that, that's definitely the, the challenge that's put in front of us right now. Um, because you you see everything's kind of traveling in two paths. Um, we are incrementing our way there, right, with feature by feature. So if you consider um, cruise control and intelligent adaptive cruise control, so we've got cruise control now that can... Um, read the street signs, and you'll never you'll never exceed the speed limit. Um, <clears throat> if that's what you choose to do, we've got um, systems that will keep you a safe distance from the cars in front of you. Uh, we'll we'll keep you in the lane. We'll let you know when you're moving out of the lane. We'll vibrate the steering wheel or the seats. Right. We'll push you back into the lane if that's what you choose to do. So there's all these choices, which is interesting. An interesting part to me. Um, we see some people that just don't like any of these electronic features and actually spend five minutes in their garage turning things off before they depart. So in that capacity, I think, you know, we've over-assumed. Um, and I see this across all the OEMs, not just our vehicle. And then I see others where, um, you know, people go to painstaking process to really understand the nuance of when does the sensor fire? How, what are the subtleties of the reactions of all these things? And, you know, through those exercises, to me, they're, they're forming, right, a, a connection or um, a distance or pushing a distance away from the brand. I mean, um, we know how long it takes to build trust and how quickly trust is eroded, or we know how quickly brand affinity can be built and 
and how we spend, you know, decades and lifetimes doing that, but we also know that a single feature or a single distasteful experience can can immediately erode that if it's at a certain level, right, and impact. Um, so, yeah, I think those are the, the very um, real parts and pieces of it. I think when you, so that's one path of incrementally getting to kind of autonomy and levels of vehicle, um, the vehicle working on your behalf or, or adding safety measures. The other path is, um, you know, if you think about hailing an Uber vehicle that just comes and gets you and takes you where you want to go from point A to point B. Um, and it's got no steering wheel. It's got no pedal. It's just got some sort of interface, right? And, you know, how even that is executed and what that feels like, what the vehicle looks like, um, what you anticipate, you know, what's in your mindset, what needs you might have that makes you think of a certain company to hail that that type of company, right? And then each experience you have with that vehicle over time, you know, is going to build a, a level of confidence and trust and affinity to the, to the brand. Um, to me, that's the next level of competition, right? And we don't know what what it is that's going to differentiate one company from another in that space. Do you think those um, two be- notions can coexist with each other, Parish? That sense that, um, on the one hand, as you say, you have uh, some of those um, elements of, of user control, which to varying degrees people may accept those new smarter features or resist those new smarter features, but they're all essentially relating to individual ownership of a vehicle in the sense that we have known it um, for many decades now uh, versus you know, a new wave of customer, which perhaps it sounds like, Alex, you maybe have more direct experience of this that, than I do, where you're essentially outsourcing your personal mobility to another organization perhaps with less regard to some of those things which would have been important to you when you individually owned the car do, do you think those two things can coexist um, in the future or are we going to see uh, you know one accelerating in, in development versus the other um, I, I think they'll coexist during most of our lifetimes <laughs> you know I think uh, the key thing you said there was maybe that there's new ways of customers, right? So I think just through the generations, you see, you know, what is normal, what is perception, what is um, with each generation, you know, and it's very, it's vastly different, right? I remember um, when Cadillac was maybe perceived of as big boats and, you know, um, your grandfather's car, whatever the case is. And then I remember when the Escalade launched, it was suddenly the cool thing among sports heroes and, um, and movie stars and things like that. Right. And, and people and kids that were, you know, maybe seven to 12 year olds were, were heavily influenced the purchasing of, of certain SUVs and things like that. Right. I mean, I think just the waves of, Customers, the waves of influence, the waves of the waves of brand perception, all just evolve. Um, yeah, what'll be interesting is you know how other industries, whether it's insurance, you know, is it more? Does it cost more to actually drive your car yourself? You know, and do they become specialty items um, or not? I mean, and, and how do these other ancillary kind of dependent? Um, markets and businesses also affect our choices right well at a personal level I'm, I'm kind of interested by this notion i mean alex for you you say you gave up on having your own car 
a couple of years ago. Um, That's right. What part of the experience of owning your own car would compel you to go back to doing it? What's the one thing that you miss most about that? Well, I, I think the thing that, well, that there are two things here. One, one is that, I mean, cars have become, uh, to a large extent, fairly commoditized. One hatchback is pretty similar to another hatchback, and, and one saloon is pretty similar to another. Um, but I think actually the, the, the thing that I, I guess I miss is, is um, really this notion that we've, we've talked about a couple of times, which is it's your personal space. And um, you, you set up your, your car radio how you want it, and you, you, you set up your, uh, your controls. You, 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 you tilt your seat back as much as you want, and you have the, the position of the steering wheel exactly where you want it. So that as soon as you get in the car, it's just there the way, the way that, that works for you best. Um, you know all this this moving around of, of of wing mirrors and so on just so that you can see properly is is the most annoying thing about getting into a, a, a zip car I guess um, and and I, I suppose if um, if there was some strong differentiation in uh, everyday cars and and here you know i'm I'm specifically saying every day because it it avoids the sort of the top end where you might be playing around with sort of quite fun sports cars or 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 some of the uh american tradition of muscle cars um but if if there was more more differentiation in in um in your everyday car then i think i might be more compelled to come back to it they are phenomenally expensive to to buy and run and insure and so on. Whereas you know, and 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 of course, environmentally, it just doesn't make sense in the same way as having a shared car that sits at the end of my road that I can I can book for an hour or two hours or two days um, when I need it, and the rest of the time I'm just using public transportation around London. So that's interesting. Some of the things that you cite there around the sort of the convenience factors and the familiarity within the in car environment. Because uh, if we map those into a sort of experience planning framework, as it were, um, that those sound like the sort of things that potentially are achievable across the whole experience that you have with an automotive brand, regardless of whether that's a car that you own personally or whether that's a car which um, you're using on an hourly basis at the end of your road, or perhaps even a mixture of, of both. I mean, am I right in thinking that, Parrish, that um, theoretically you know, we could get to a point with uh, automotive brands where they're able to provide you with that kind of personalized experience, regardless of who owns the particular car that you're getting into? It would know that it is you and it would provide the elements of, of the experience that you're accustomed to and that you expect and just deliver them through that particular vehicle to you. Is that something which is uh, achievable within, um, you know, that the sort of life span of cars that, that we're likely to see? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think it's actually a, um, a pursuit that most of the automotive companies are, are chasing, right? When you think about profile management, um, the first step in, uh, you know, as we talked about adaptation is to understand, you know, your likes, your preferences, your patterns. Um, so is it presets? Is it physical adjustments? Um it's really interesting when things start hugging you and grabbing you and moving you around and moving around you. But then when they stop, 
it perfectly fits you, right? I mean, to Alex's story. Um, and if that is done automatically because it recognizes who you are as you approach the vehicle, that that resonates, right, at a certain level. Um, I think, you know, the other important piece is it's almost like the fact of the, the art of driving itself, too. So um, depending what classification of vehicle you've been in or what you've been inclined to purchase or, or what you have experienced, you know, a lot of these, I call a lot of our vehicles, especially even the smaller ones, like an attitude adjuster, right? No matter what kind of day I've had, if I get into a Focus ST or a Focus RS and I drive home between the bumps, the feel, the acceleration, um, usually driving a manual, you know, it's, it's, it's changing my attitude through the fun of driving. I mean, honestly, right. And Ford's always been about kind of that fun of driving and pushing that in a, in a lot of different segments. Um, yeah. So a question will be, right. How, how important is that in the future to the point of, you know, how do those things combine, whether it's adjustments around me feeling very personal, how many personal things do I still have in my life, right? Beyond my phone. Um, I think we, we, we hear a lot, you know, and then even relationship building and how can I connect with others and where do I connect with others? And is the vehicle still my primary place, right? To drive my kids around and check on their day or to, pick up an old friend and catch up while, you know, commuting or whatever the case is. Um, there's just still a lot of socioeconomic, cultural, you know, connections that we have to track and figure out, um, yeah, how to, how to differentiate, how to add value, um, how to make very choiceful decisions about, you know, behavior and, and product design and service design to, to, to leverage those things, right? How does that challenge of user research compare versus other industries that you've been involved in? Because it, it sounds like what you're describing there is a pretty complex um, set of, of segmentation within the market, you know, from the sort of macro uh, level of whether or not driving in the future is going to be primarily about um, a, a fairly uh, sort of functional personal mobility need versus people who are driving for the fun of driving itself and then going down into all of the micro segments of how particular people want to feel during those different experiences you know how does that compare say to what you were doing uh during your role at motorola where you're trying to understand those segments and are there particular things about doing it within the in-car environment which make it more challenging to get as as granular set of user data as you need to be able to make good design decisions about that. Yeah. Um, it Again, like foundational UX principles, I think um, it's very similar, right? I think I've always emphasized focusing on the questions that need to be answered, and it might be macro or micro questions, right? Um, but the means of and methods of research have always been at our disposal it's almost like which one you convince the company are best at answering these different questions, right? And in gleaning certain insights. So, um, you know, whether it's anthropologically based, it's contextual based, it's immersive and observational based, whether it's um, participatory, it's co-discovery, um, you know, and it's exploratory through making, whether it's um, web-based, and it's quantitative and it's large scale surveys, whether it's usability based and it's, you know, 
through direct observation and interaction, we we build a lot of prototypes. I have quite a few simulators, you know, driving simulators at my disposal um, of different fidelities. Um, we rent courses, you know, driving courses. We create courses all over the world and drive prototypes and have closed course testing and competitive testing in that regard. Um, all these things have been around, right? And now you start to even um, wire people with EEGs and you do eye tracking and you're getting deeper. So, again, the means and methods have been there. I think maybe the web stuff has expanded a bit. Um, but it's, it's, again, choosing the best method, the best techniques um, to answer the questions you need that you think are the most important, right? Well, as you say, the first principles um, obviously remain consistent, uh, but it sounds like you know at least the motivation is there, and perhaps also the need is there because of uh, how it plays into things like safety considerations and so on to go to uh, a more in-depth level than maybe other industries would. I mean, how how do you feel automotive ranks in terms of the complexity of the user research it's doing versus? other industries once you start getting into using things like custom simulators and measuring heart rates uh, and that sort of stuff. Right. Obviously, right. all of those things are possible within other industries, but in terms of the appetite for doing it, um, where do you think automotive sits? Oh, amongst amongst the leaders, for sure. Um, just, again, given the sheer nature and scale, right? And for us, um, there's the study of improving the in-vehicle experience, the driving experience, of course, keeping everything safe. Um, you know, so we we run tests where, you know, we intend for the people to fall asleep while driving, right? We can do those kind of things in a simulator in a safe environment. We can put you in different vehicles and we can have things jump out at you, right? And very unexpected situations. Um, and again, we can control that and... You know, I think actually the extremity of the situations that we have to simulate and that we have to create um, exceeds what most companies and most verticals would need to consider, right? I mean, for um, electronic, consumer electronics and telecom, obviously, we had fit and finish and, you know, feel in your hand and functional speed and um, going deep into screens and information architecture and such. And then we had pocketability and fit in your purse and, you know, break and, and shatterproof and those kind of things. But, um, yeah, I think take all of that and um, speed it all up <laughs> and make the space a little broader and add more screens and, um, you know, add kind of a distraction and things like that. Um yeah, and it gets exponentially more complex, obviously. It, it has been interesting, you know, in my four and a half years in the automotive space, I mean, just to bring new methods in and to, you know, say, okay, if I want to redesign every symbol, every icon, every label, every yeah, vocabulary in a vehicle, I know how to do that, right? I know how to do that from other industries. I know how to do that on a quantitative scale across multiple continents, you know, week by week by week in a repeatable process. Um, and those are things that I think just weren't done, right? There there was definitely an awareness um, of methods that were born in the automotive industry and actually born in the, um, uh, the um, cockpit design industry. 
Um, but, you know, understanding and learning from the past of mobile, um, you know, of research methods and, and uh, applications like that, lessons learned and in, in transferring them has been excessively helpful for me. A big area um, where I think this is really going to come to light is in gestures and in input. Um, well, that sort of brings me on to uh, another question that we wanted to ask you, which is around um, when you look to the future for some of these digital experiences uh, in automotive or just in, in terms of your personal interest, you know, I, I know you have pretty expansive interests across all areas of, of digital innovation. Where do you look for your sources of inspiration about what some of those um, interfaces and interaction paradigms might look like in the future? Um, yeah, from a, a personal perspective, I'm sure um, Ford does lots of competitive benchmarking like uh, yeah, all organizations do. But for you personally, um, are there particular things you're seeing out there at the moment that are inspiring you about the future of UI design, which you might be able to apply to uh, to your role at Ford? Yeah, it's, you know, at some point, I it's interesting, I felt like I hit a, a pretty heavy saturation of the interaction paradigms, um, just the input modalities and, and what was possible, right, given technology and knowing where technology was going, um, whether it's touch, whether it's uh, gesture, um, whether it's direct physical buttons, right, versus touching a screen, um, pushing through a screen, gestures on the screen, uh, voice input. Voice input's been one to really interestingly watch. I think, um, you know, in the past, I've looked to interactive voice response. I've looked to kind of evolutions of touch um, adoption. So for me, it's when kind of the, the zeitgeist or the, the mental models really of um, the way people behave and the way they think about things starts to change. So um, if I ask people to adjust the seat, you know, even if they're sitting at a dining room table or if they're sitting in the car, you know, they, they pick up the seat or they reach below them and they move things around or, um, but if I ask them to play music, you know, they used to look for a physical button and now they just look for a button on the screen, those kind of things, right? Um, yeah, that's interesting how that's very much a shifting sort of a landscape, you know, the expectations there, probably even just in the time that you've been at Ford over the last three or four years, those expectations right. on a mass scale will, will have started to change. Um, yeah, if you think about the transition from the sort of expectation of there being some kind of uh, like 12 key dial pad involved in phone interfaces, even if they're touchscreen smartphones through to where we are now, where you know, it's much more about lists and grids of icons, you know, even within those three or four years, I think those expectations have changed and probably need to be then reflected uh, in what's designed in other industries, which seek to be compatible with those. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the same can be said, right. It extends to climate and extends to lighting. It extends to comfort. Um, so for me, there's uh, more of the pockets of interactivity or changing paradigms. One that I've been faced with multiple times in my career through multiple industries is this kind of um, third party or other operating system, right? Merging with the experience that you're already providing. And um, at Motorola, we designed 
you know, dumb client laptops that you would plug your phone into and the phone had multi-core processors and it would spur another operating system that was embedded in your phone that would drive a laptop, right? To me, very much CarPlay, Android Auto, these feel like that, right? You're plugging in your phone and your phone's now extending into different places. We would do the same kind of experiments with televisions or, you know, you plug your phone into your refrigerator and suddenly it takes over. I mean, all these things were possible via the same technologies. Um, so it's interesting to see where it sticks, where it doesn't stick, the lessons you can learn from the past and so forth, right? Um, the input modalities, uh, those kind of partnership interactions, um, the realities of the speed at which people's expectations change or adoption or stereotypes change, all these are kind of constants. and. And it, it feels very much like the same challenges just applied to a different space. Okay, so if, if we're trying to overcome these these challenges now um, and, and going forward over the next sort of, um, let's say, one to five years, what, what, what sort of characteristics and skills are you looking for in, in the people that you, you bring to work, you know, with you on, on, on these challenges? Yeah, um, you know, it's, it's been really interesting for me to watch the UX discipline evolve. Um, I kind of skipped the whole design thinking piece because that was pretty much how most of us thought and acted, I think, before that came about. And that was a, a great adaptation of it to mainstream um, kind of business and corporations and so forth, and, and even education. But um, to me, the model of T-shaped individuals, right, still stands. Um, I always talk about people having a major and a minor. Uh, there's multiple interests. There's multiple expertise. Um, you know, I'm starting to see a lot more people just coming out of school, out of different programs that have this, right? Where in the past you had to almost um, learn these and have these hobbies that became your profession or vice versa and kind of evolve as a professional into these T-shaped things. Um, but I, you know, I see a lot of design majors that have an MBA or... Um, again, you know, whether it was performance art or it was human factors, um, I still hold industrial design in probably the highest regard um, just because of the frame of reference of um, foundational principles that you learn. And especially if you're adding a philosophical component or a um, analytics component or you're bridging physical and digital and a lot of programs are doing that these days. Um, so those are interesting to me. Um, you know, I don't, I think, again, the same type of person that I hired in the late 80s and the 90s still stands today as the most useful, um, with or without the industry expertise, right? And I can say that because I'm a person that's jumped industries a couple of times, and I never expected I could come to the automotive industry, actually, um, when I was first the first time it ever came up, you know, um, and then it turns out that, yeah, it's a very natural fit, just given skills, experiences, um, things we've had to kind of solve before, lessons learned, and, and their direct application and transference. What's the um, appetite like among uh, the kind of, particularly at the graduate level, uh, for people to come and work within automotive design as it evolves more of these digital experience elements uh, because I think you know, traditionally in design automotive was often seen as 
being sort of a pinnacle of a, a career, if you like, to go and work for a car manufacturer and be involved in car design. Um, but now, of course, there is very much that competing sense of going to work within um, a technology company being seen as the the big ticket item for graduates. How are you finding that playing out with uh, the people that you talk to at the graduate level or earlier in their careers about how they feel about coming into that and, and the sort of challenges that they might be able to work on within the, the automotive space? Oh, I think, um, I think the challenges are readily apparent. Um, that's, that's not a hard thing to sell. I mean, um, the interest is overwhelming without a doubt. Um, the opportunity for change, for impact on society, I think is, is realized. And, you know, again, through my career, looking for these opportunities has been important and trying to be just a step ahead of them um, and help craft the way it unfolds has been important for me. Um, so, you know, we, we actually have overwhelming interest. It's more internally out, right? I mean, the learning curve of inside the company where um, even Detroit might have been more insular and, and there was a certain pay level and an education level and certain universities. Suddenly, when you expand that significantly and you're, you're hiring a lot of people that maybe have never driven a vehicle, right? Or absolutely do not have an engineering degree. They have some other, you know, they're, they're more liberal arts oriented. And, and these changes have had to happen. I think they're still really just happening now. I think, um, there's still almost this belief that you know, you get a job in a domestic uh, automaker, you can stay there for a long time, right? So if you look at the average, and I'm grossly generalizing, but if you look at the Silicon Valley um, resume of a top performer, they might be in the, you know, a different company every two to three years. And, but that's, that's normal, right? And how does that normal become our normal? And um, so again, lots of conversation, um, lots of case studies, lots of sitting people down and having conversations and meeting different types of people and, and understanding um, how it can all play out. The interesting thing is taking all that cultural change inside and applying it to results, right? So in mobile, I could go from a concept to a store shelf in maybe nine months. I could always be two years ahead and have those products be adapted and brought to market, you know, within a year. Um, here, we're still in three, four, five-year cycle plans. So really right now for me, having been here for four years, the products that are just coming out, the Lincoln Continental, um, new smaller cars, the new evolution of trucks, you know, they're just starting to reflect um some of these changes and some of this way of thinking. And so it'll be very interesting to me if, if those changes and subtleties and um, nuances of experience-based thinking and is, are realized, right, by the marketplace. Do, do you think we can move to, to a, a faster cycle of, of iterations that is possibly not quite uh, the same as, as, as the agile approach for, for software, but, but something that just means that you can slightly update each uh, each vehicle, um, each model, uh, frequently between between major releases. Yeah, I can. Um, so at Ford, we talk a lot about um, brought in, built in, and beamed in. Right. So I'm bringing in my mobile phone, or I've already um, embedded uh, and built in a navigation 
um, package, um, or I'm beaming in something, right? I'm getting over-the-air updates that connected to Wi-Fi at my house every time I go into my garage. Those, those are all possible. Um, we can, through the introduction of something like Fort Pass, you know, and, and having a platform that's brought in and tightly connected to the business models of the company, we can obviously work on 30, 60, 90, um, day cycles of improvement. Um, but, you know, other emerging companies, mostly emerging from the tech world or on the West Coast, and Tesla is a good example, you know, they're building one vehicle with a kind of extensible capability to handle a 10-year roadmap of experiences, right, and delivery. Um, and they're learning through doing and they're iterating, so it's much more of a software model versus or software-driven model. And that's that's not how the traditional OEMs, you know, design and build a car and that evolution, again, of um, vehicle architecture, of electrical architecture, of the modules I was talking about earlier, all that connectivity that, you know, they have to change pretty significantly the infrastructure um, to be able to, I think, um, perform at the same level or change at the same level or react at the same level as some of the um, the newer upstarts, right, in the industry. So at a personal level, Parish, um, obviously it sounds like you're becoming accustomed to working with these slightly longer timescales with the, the products. Um, but have you given thought to what for you uh, personally will feel like success in this role? Do you have something in mind that, you know, a particular um, point that you want to get to where you can make a certain contribution to the experience design capabilities within this industry? Um, absolutely. I think, you know, just as we've seen changes in consumer electronics and telecom and um, the web-based services that we rely on, you know, whether it's your banking, your investments, um, those kind of things very integral to your life. Um, at what point do you stop, you know, having to second guess your vehicle or um, it really does become just an extension of the thing you do and the person you are and the person you want to become and, you know, the, the dynamic you want to have with others and so forth. Um, I think that's just always been the end goal, you know, that it it's so well designed that um, it's, you know, it's always usable. It's it's always out of the way, but it's always complementary and um, and you know making you a better person, right? And and making an enhancement of who you are and who you want to be. Um, yeah, and it's 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 definitely incremental steps. I mean, again, it's you know sitting in the car and realizing how everything functions, what it means, what it can do for you, what the potential is that it has. And, um, you know, and maybe not understanding why it is that way, but um, just feeling different, right? Well, it sounds feeling like different. an incredibly <laughs> fulfilling and challenging uh, area to be working in. And who knows, perhaps um, give it a few more years and there'll be a future podcast where people go back and cite examples from Ford in 2016, just as we cited examples from Saab in 1993 and Citroen in 1968. 
Um, but I, I guess we've come up against time um, for the, the podcast today. Uh, I wanted to say thank you to Parrish for um, a really fascinating insight into what's going on within automotive. been great to have you on the show, uh, and I hope we can continue the discussions in the future. Oh, my pleasure. It was uh, a much broader breadth of topics than I ever expected, and I feel like, um, you know, through the years, Merrick, you and I have traveled an interesting journey, and I uh, hope that continues. So, so thanks yeah. for doing what you guys are doing, for sure. <laughs> Well, for me, it's been uh, very interesting hearing about the the challenges that uh, you know you're facing in, in I guess in really transforming um, some of the things that that Ford does. So, so thank you very much. My pleasure. Well, that's it for this edition of Mech's Design Talk. I'm just coming to the end of the walk that I'd started when I was recording the introduction to this show. But before we go, a couple of things. Firstly, a question for you all. What single piece of digital technology do you think is going to have the biggest impact on how you get around in the future? Let's set a date for it. Let's say five years from now, 2021. By that time, What one development in digital do you think is going to have the most influence on the cars, public transport, personal mobility that you use to get yourself around the place? Love to hear your answers to this. So you can email designtalk at mobileuserexperience.com. Feel free to write in with your ideas. Or better still, if you get a chance to record a segment of audio, and send that to us as an attachment, we might be able to feature it on future editions of the show. Lastly, don't forget those show notes, mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section. There's a wealth of links there relating to all of the different things that we talked about in this episode, including Parrish's talk from his appearance at MEX a few years back, uh, and a range of other things all linking in to the different ideas that we covered in the chat. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.